We stand in the power of Christ this morning, amen? That's right. One quick announcement on behalf of Pastor Jim. The teens will meet in the chapel today for ABF. Again, teenagers in the chapel today for the ABF hour. I'd like to turn your attention this morning to John chapter 2. The Gospel of John, attributed to John the Apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 2, a wedding miracle. I was telling someone that, no, this is not a Hallmark movie take. We're looking at the wedding miracle at Cana. John chapter 2. Please follow along as I read those first 11 verses. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have capped the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana at Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that tells us some very important truths about the disciples of Christ and following Christ. And we ask that as you Your Holy Spirit uh, works today that you might uh, minister through your word. And we give you the praise for the opportunity once again to gather as your people this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, my wife and I attended a family wedding. It was the wedding of my niece, my, my brother's daughter. And it was held at a farmstead outside of Philadelphia that had been converted into a a venue. The farmhouse was like a guest house, and the barn had been updated and modernized somewhat, still kept the same rustic look, but modernized, you know what I mean, so that it could be used for a reception hall. And uh, the service was wonderful. It was an open-air service outside, and then afterward, we all gathered in the barn for the reception. I noticed my brother was a little bit anxious and uh, this is the brother. We shared the same room growing up, so we were close. And I, I said to him, what's, what's up? What's going on? And he said, uh, the caterer had not yet arrived and was delayed in Philadelphia traffic, which being translated means we have no food. Not a good thing at a wedding reception. Fortunately, the master of ceremonies was a radio personality from Philadelphia. 
And he was able to keep the, gra- the crowd engaged for what seemed like an hour until the food showed up. And very few people ever knew what happened. Needless to say, my brother was greatly relieved. Studying for today's sermon reminded me of that memorable family event. It did have all the makings of a Hallmark movie. And I'm not suggesting that it was a miracle that the food and the caterer finally arrived. Although if you're, struck, you're ever stuck in Philadelphia traffic, when things begin to move, you do feel like some sort of miracle has taken place. Right, Jim? Yeah, Amen. But in today's message, in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, it's entitled, A Wedding Miracle. Something truly extraordinary happens at a wedding in Cana. And it makes it a memorable occasion and worthy of mention in the Holy Scriptures. And so, we look at it, and we study it, and we talk about it, and we glean from it. I want you to notice, first of all, in the text this morning, those who are mentioned at being in attendance at the wedding miracle. Verse 1 tells us here that the mother of Jesus was there. Her name is never used in the Gospel of John. Did you know that? But she's called the mother of Jesus. We know her as Mary. And she was at least an invited guest On this occasion, she may have been a relative of the bride or groom. Mary may also have had some sort of role or responsibility in helping with the festivities. She's there and she has a key part to play in this drama that unfolds. The scripture also tells us in verse 2 that Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Jesus attended that wedding along with about five or six disciples. He didn't have the full complement together yet. And they were invited, the disciples and Jesus, because of their connection to Mary. All of this happens on the third day after the activities that took place by the Jordan River. They attended And they arrived in Cana. Cana, by the way, was one of the disciples' hometown. It was Nathaniel's hometown. And it really wasn't that far from Nazareth. So Jesus' hometown was no more than 10 miles away. And it may have been significantly closer. We also see in verse 5 that there are some servants that are there. More accurately, perhaps, described as servers or waitstaff. They were part of the catering crew that uh, catered the celebration. They're there in verse 5, and they have a key part to play. And they're given an insider's perspective on what's taking place. Then in verses 8 and 9, we also see that the master of the feast was uh, there. It seems that he has duties related to the reception or to the celebration, much like a head waiter or a head waitress would who gives oversight to a catering event. So the master of feast has a vital part to play. And then, of course, in verse 9, we also find that, that the groom is there. Good thing when you're having a wedding. 
He's, he's the host and one of the ones ultimately responsible for bringing all those people together. Interestingly not mentioned is the bride or the rest of the guests. Were they important? Yes, they absolutely were. But they take a back seat in the record of this revelatory event. So having looked at those who were there who played a key role, let's look at the wedding, the occasion for the wedding miracle. We find that in verse 3. The wine ran out, verse 3 tells us. Now wine was a staple drink in that economy. And it was often diluted from one-third to one-tenth of its original strength. And that was to help guard against drunkenness. Because the Bible doesn't forbid drinking wine, but it does condemn drunkenness rather strongly. So the wine ran out. People were drinking the dregs. This was one of those cases of too much wedding left at the end of the wine. I remember when my sisters got married, my dad, you sort of had to know him, but, um, you know, there was a lot he wasn't concerned about. He certainly was concerned that his daughters have a good day. But his chief concern at the reception was that the caterer not run out of food. I remember him specifically saying that on a couple of occasions with two of my sisters. Why? That would be an embarrassment to him, right? And the same was true in Jesus' day, only more so. The newly married couple and their family would have been disgraced by what was taking place if they would completely run out. They would be too ashamed and unable to live down the embarrassment of running out of refreshments. Merrill Tenney in his commentary on John said, had the wine actually failed, the occurrence would have been regarded as an insult to those present and would have banished the host and the hostess to practical isolation. That was a small community. So no dinner invitations, no other invites to any community social gatherings. You're ostracized. The wine ran out. Now, many have speculated why there was a shortage of wine. And we're not really told in the passage why, but we are told the fact of the dilemma. How did this happen? We don't know. And like other details in the story that we might wish to know to satisfy our curiosity, those details as well take a back seat to the story. This much we know. The wine ran out. And so now, knowing who's there and knowing what the main problem was, let's look at the story as it unfolds from verses 3 to verse 10. We learn some very significant things. In verse 3, look at what the scripture says. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Why did she inform Jesus of this? She was his mother. Now, moms generally know things about their kids other people don't know, for better or for worse, right? Listen, Mary was, was aware 
and knew Jesus and was aware of many things about him and who he was and what his ministry and mission on earth was all about. I'm not suggesting that she understood everything perfectly, but what I'm saying is Mary knew her son better than most. And so, in this passage, she has every confidence in him and knew he could do something about it. But I believe, based on Jesus' response in verse 4, that Mary also saw the occasion as an opportunity, as evident by the way he responds to her when she says, they have no wine. Look at verse 4 as the story unfolds, because Jesus responds to Mary in this way. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He's not saying, and you are telling me this because... I'm busy. He's not saying, who cares? It's their problem. They should have thought of that ahead of time. He's not saying, it's none of my business. He's not saying any of that. Literally in the Greek, this, it reads this way. Woman, what to me and to you? My hour has not yet come. I want to say at the outset, if I ever referred to my mother as woman, she would interpret it as disrespect and box my ears. But that wasn't true in Jesus' day. This was not a term of disrespect, but a polite form of address. We need to understand that. In a polite way, he was saying that Mary's real concern was not the same concern that he had at that moment. Her concern had to await his hour. Her concern had to await his time. They're not on the same page. It reveals that Mary had an expectation of Jesus that went beyond simply making sure that the beverages were restocked at the wedding reception. It appears, based upon Jesus' response to her in verse 4, it appears that she felt that this was the perfect opportunity for him to put his messianic character on display and thereby vindicate her. Homer Kent in his commentary on John says this, it's better to understand that Mary was hoping for Jesus to give the supreme manifestation of himself perhaps to remove the suspicion of impurity that must have hovered over her those many years since she was found to be with child. So she's thinking something like, you're the king by right. This is your time. Go save the day, seize the spotlight, And set the record straight concerning me. Let them know that I was faithful to my vow to Joseph and you were not born out of wedlock. He was telling her she doesn't understand the timetable for such matters. There will be a time for that. Now is not that time. He will act at the wedding, but not in the way that she she thought he should 
or in the way that she had hoped he would. The full display of his glory to accomplish what Mary hoped would come later. It would come at Calvary. It would come at the open tomb. It's important to see that Jesus performed this miracle not at the behest or the request of his mother in order to accomplish her will, but according to the purpose and the plan of the heavenly Father in order to accomplish his will. My time has not yet come. By the way, we would be wise to learn that lesson well, wouldn't we? we would be wise to learn that lesson as well. Let's be honest. I'll be honest with you. You be honest with me. There are times when we know exactly how God should show himself and what he should do in a particular situation in order to help us or to vindicate us in some way, and we don't mind telling him so. Right? It's true. And I suppose there's a sense in which it's perfectly fine to cry out to God in that hour of need. He wants to hear from us. I think of the passage in John eleven twenty one 21, where Martha says to Jesus, after her brother Lazarus has been dead for a few days, she says to Jesus when she sees him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I'm not criticizing Martha's response to Jesus when he finally arrives in Bethany. She's, she's in a desperate wilderness situation where, where we find ourselves at times, right? Difficulty. Tough stuff that by God's grace he's allowed us or called us to go through. Martha's brother had died. But listen, this is the the takeaway for me from this passage. God doesn't need to perform as we think he ought to. He's not at our disposal in that way. We are neither his public relations strategists. Lord, do you realize what you could accomplish if you do this? How people will respond? I mean, they'll go gaga. They'll fall all over you. We're not his public relations strategists. He's, he's not some sort of a divine vending machine, is he? He's our Lord. He's our master. We are his followers. Get the order right. We take orders from him. We don't give orders to him. The Bible says he acts according to his good pleasure. That brings him great glory. I would confess to you, that I am a frail child of faith and feeble as frail. I have limited understanding.
Elizabeth Elliot wrote in a book called A Chance to Die. It's about the life and legacy of Amy Carmichael, great missionary to India for many years. And she had suffered her own fair share of hardships. Elizabeth Elliot wrote these words. The work of God is done on God's timetable. Amen? Whether or not you say amen, it's true. (laughs) The work of God is done on God's timetable. His answers to our prayers come always in time. Always in time. His time, she says. His thoughts are far higher than ours. His wisdom past understanding. My time has not yet come. It will come, but not yet. So in verse 5, we find these words. His mother said to the servants, this is her response. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's interesting in verse 5 that Mary doesn't seem put off at all by Jesus' response. He may have mildly rebuked her in a very respectful manner, but she accepts his response and informs the staff to do whatever he instructs them to do. To quote Tani, she fully expected that he would take appropriate action. It appears that Mary Mary got the message. Something would be done, but not quite what she had hoped at that time. And so verses 6 and 7, as the narrative moves along, we're told there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Those those jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing, for the washing of hands before eating, for the cleaning of the utensils and so forth, they are to fill them with water and they do so, presumably from a well. And in verse 8, he said to them, now, draw some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, it probably only took one of them to take it. This is a little sanctified, specs of, uh, sanctified speculation on my part. So let me get that straight. This is not in the text. But I'm visually, I'm visually imagining that it only takes one to take a little bit of that to the master of the feast. But it's really fun if you knew what happened, then a whole group of you goes. And you just observe what takes place. And so Jesus instructs them that, uh, to, to take a, a little vessel of some sort and, and, and dip it in one of the containers, take it to the head waiter, wait for him to taste it. And he does. And verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew question, did they have smiles on their faces? Were they thinking, oh, this is going to be good? The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. 
but you have kept the good wine until now. When the head waiter tasted that, he had no idea that Jesus had short-circuited the normal process of nature and performed a miracle. No idea. He assumed that the groom had set aside better wine, wine that was perhaps less diluted, set aside better wine for later in the feast, and he complimented him on his choice of saving the best wine for last. We're not told if the groom was surprised by the head waiter's remarks. It's likely that the groom was as surprised as the head waiter. And perhaps, along with being surprised, like my brother, greatly relieved. What is the significance or what are the opportunities that flow out of this wedding miracle? What's interesting is you read commentators on this. Some of the stuff you read is just like, it's kind of lame. Yes, a crisis is averted. Yes, a young couple is spared embarrassment and social disgrace. Yes, Jesus cares about those things, but that's the main, not the main thrust of the passage. And, and okay, maybe, maybe Mary gets a career as a wedding planner. But any of the things that happen in that passage are really incidental to what verse 11 says is the significance of that passage. Verse 11, look at what the text states. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The text states, first of all, in verse 11, that this was the first of his signs. Now, a sign in John's gospel is a miracle with a meaning. There's a reason for it. It's meant to convey a truth that would otherwise not be known. And what this sign does is it points to God's working in the world through Jesus. This particular sign is performed almost in his own backyard, very close to where he grew up. And it's done in a very subtle way. We would say that Jesus did this on the down low. Not too many people really knew what took place. It may not have thrust Jesus into the spotlight as Mary had hoped, but it communicated a clear message to his disciples those who were his closest followers, those who were privy to its details. And in that, it reached its intended audience and served its intended purpose. Jesus had begun his public ministry and he was on the move. It's like from from. From this point on, well, actually, you have to start at the beginning of the Gospel of John. But throughout the whole book of John, it just crescendos. It just builds. It gets louder. The text says that he manifested 
his glory, verse 10, or verse 11. What exactly does that mean? He manifested or revealed his glory. In an essay for the Gospel Coalition, Christopher Morgan writes, the Bible often depicts glory as the display of God's attributes, his perfections, or his person. John's gospel speaks of glory in this way. It's the display of, the display of God's attributes, his perfections, or his person. And Jesus performs signs that demonstrate his glory. Again, Tani, this first sign marked the beginning of a ministry accompanied by supernatural power, an attribute of God. And you see this attribute of omnipotence on display here. He converted water into wine in an instant. This is like the first of seven or eight miracles in the Gospel of John, all designed to authenticate his identity as the Son of God. He can change water into wine. We're going to learn through the course of the Gospel of John that he also converts sinners to saints. Another miracle, by the way. This miracle at the outset of his public ministry is proof positive that he is God. At the outset of his public ministry, he performs this miracle, which like every other miracle he performs, proves that he's God and he is there to carry out the plan and the will of God. So what? It affirms his calling. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be followed. He is worthy to be obeyed. He is worthy to be served. He is worthy. He is God. The disciples are getting this message. This isn't just tag along with the leader of the band. This, he is God. He is worthy. You're seeing God revealed through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. These words leap off the page to me. They, they demand our full attention. We're seeing the real and true presence of the living God with his people and with his Followers. This is an example of something John said in John chapter 1. This is what he said in verse 14. He said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Like we commit that verse to memory without ever stopping and considering the full import of it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John goes on to say, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 are a real example 
of what John writes about in chapter 1 when he says, we have beheld, we have seen, we have observed his glory. We gazed at his glory. These miracles were attention grabbers for the disciples. Wasn't just to rescue a young couple in a tough spot. It was to to teach his disciples something significant about who he was and what he was there to do. It was also to teach them that they were there for more than just being along for the ride. They were a vital part of what was taking place and what would happen. His identity, who he really was, was made plain to his disciples in a remarkable and impressive way in this miracle. And I would submit to you that because we have the privilege of having this in the pages of Holy Scripture, it should have the same effect upon us when we go back and read this story. Here is the Christ the Son of the living God, the Word made flesh, dwelling among us and performing these signs. Someone put it this way. He put who he is as God on full display for his followers to witness. Full display. And nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. He reveals his glory day in and day out to his followers, especially through the pages of this wonderful gospel. He continues to make plain his power and his presence, his provision. He continues to make plain his protection and his promises to his followers. And he brings us all the way up to the end of the gospel of John where he shares about his passion, and the reason for it. I don't often read poems in in, in public, but here is one that highlights the ministry of the work uh, and uh, the Lord Jesus in in a very unique way. Just listen to it. Who is this man of whom all prophets speak? The one who is so strong and yet so meek. The man of miracles who spreads around wisdom and love, nowhere else to be found. Who is this man, the one from Galilee, who brings calm to those on the raging sea? The man that bids the rushing winds to cease and amidst the chaos of life brings us peace. Who is this man who reaches out to touch the blind and leprous who he loves so much? The man to whom the people are bringing, the blind, the deaf, those without the power of speech and the dying. Who is this man dressed in a crimson robe, the one that all the leaders fear and loathe? The man that they mock and beat with a rod, the one who is known as the Son of God. Who is this man we see climbing the hill, so determined to carry out God's will? Who from the cross cries out, Father, forgive, and gives up his life so that we might live? Who is this man lying dead in the grave and then in triumph rises up to save? The one we see ascending into heaven, opening its gates to men and to women. 
He is the Christ, God's one and only Son. He is the Lord, the altogether lovely one. God manifest in human flesh is He, deity clothed with our humanity. He manifested His glory. Can't read verse 11 and just run past it. You need to stop and you need to contemplate and consider all that Jesus was doing. And that's not the end because the passage says in closing his last, last sentence in our Bibles and his disciples believed in him. Remember what I just said? He put who he is as God on full display for his followers to witness. The disciples needed these lessons. He had called them to follow him. And now he is using these to strengthen their faith in him. What Jesus is doing here is part of the equipping and training process for his disciples. Homer Kemp puts it this way in his commentary. He said, The faith of the disciples increased, for faith rests upon knowledge, and as their knowledge of him enlarged, their trust deepened. Catch that? Let me say that again. That's a significant statement. The faith of the disciples increased, for faith rests upon knowledge, and as their knowledge of him enlarged, their trust deepened. It's the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He will equip, and he will empower, and he will build up, and he will motivate his disciples to do his work. Jesus did not call his disciples to stroke his ego. He did not call his disciples so that they would clap for him when he did something extraordinary or supernatural. He did not call them to stroke his ego and, and as he wowed them. Jesus was not a narcissist. He knew they were no good to him on the sideline. He wanted them in the game. And the way to get them in the game was to call them and to equip them to serve. The miracle that he performs in John chapter 2, as well as what takes place through the rest of that gospel, has as its purpose their training so that they could be a part of the work. As their knowledge of him enlarged, their trust in him deepened, and they were unleashed and pressed into meaningful service. Hence, the book of the, of the Acts of the Apostles, the rest of the New Testament, where we see as Jesus has taken this group, he's equipped them and then unleashed them so that they could serve him in that meaningful way. So is that true of you? you say, well, I, yeah, I wasn't there in John chapter 2. No, but you have John chapter 2. <laughs> is that true of you? You have his infallible and errant, forever settled in heaven word. You have a resource at your fingertips that is 
filled with the wonder and the work of the Almighty. And as your knowledge of Him becomes bigger and more extensive, your trust in Him will deepen, it will increase your faith, and it will strengthen you. The result, you, like the disciples, will be helpful in bringing others to Him as well as very useful in your service to Him however He chooses to use you if you're obedient. You will be a faithful follower. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this passage which reminds us of what You do and what You did through Your Son, the Lord Jesus to equip and encourage the disciples that they might serve faithfully. To highlight these things so that we could unmistakably say with confidence, the Lord Jesus is the living God. Thank you for the work that he did in that passage. Thank you for the work that he continues to do in each and every life. Do we believe that you still do miracles, Lord? Yes, and we are reminded, especially every time someone comes to know Jesus as Savior, we thank you for that. We ask that um, today as we go from here, as we consider the words penned by John under the inspiration of the Spirit, that you might cause us to visit often in the Gospels what is familiar to us, but what but once again needs a fresh look. We give you the praise. We pray that you'd help us to be those faithful followers of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.